Let me start this episode with a simple call to action. Earlier this week, the guys over at Chill Filter Podcast released a special episode. Cole, one of the hosts, got to experience an introduction into fatherhood, and as a result, he was unable to help record the episode. They graciously reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in joining them, and of course I said yes. The types of conversations they have on their episodes are exactly why I started doing this. So if you have a few minutes, go download the episode and give them a rating over on Apple Podcasts. They let me come on and tarnish their good reputation with my ramblings, and maybe if you let them know that you started listening to them because of me, they just might invite me back. In the last episode, we spent the better part of 20 minutes talking about estate operations and their attention to detail in regards to stewarding a crop from pre-planting stages all the way into the barrel. The connection between farming and whiskey, the source of the grain, and the care and consideration, it's all a magnificent part of the development of the United States of America. This week, we'll pivot to a discussion about what happens after the grain is harvested, the grain being a foundational aspect of the whiskey and the creation of the mash, and how the mash impacts the final product. For the uninitiated, we will start with what mash is, and for those of you that are already fully in the know, you can probably skip ahead a couple of minutes. The process of mashing is an attempt to use grain, malt, and water to extract as much fermentable compounds as possible prior to distillation. This process converts starch into sugar that then results in something called wort. Yeast is introduced to the concoction upon cooling and the sugars begin to be converted into alcohol. In many distillery tours, you'll hear this product referred to as beer prior to distillation. While that's largely true, if you were ever able to tour Maker's Mark prior to COVID protocols, you likely had an opportunity to taste this fermented product. It largely will taste weaker, less clean, and sour. What creates this difference in flavor profile? It's not just the mash bill used to create the beer, but it's also part of the process. Distillers have the benefit of knowing that the distillation process will sanitize any produced spirit, whereas brewers need a clean palate. They need the enzymatic structure of the fermented product to be prepared to allow hops and other additive products to influence the flavor profile. The bacterial makeup is also largely different, and this is what the distiller actually wants. But the distillation process and its final impact on flavor is not what this particular episode is about, so we'll bring it back around to the central theme today. The impact that mash and by proxy the grain happens to play on the final product that ends up in the bottle. It's widely believed that small grains used in the creation of particular whiskey expressions impact the flavor by up to or even beyond 25%. Much love is given to the aging process and the barrel as to its impact on flavor, but 25% isn't something to shake a stick at. There's a significant amount of material out on the internet around the revival heirloom breeds of corn, and when talking about traditional American whiskey mash bills, we give great consideration to rye, wheat, barley, but most importantly, corn. Unusual grains can be considered a niche market for both farmers and distillers, a point of differentiation in all marketplaces and a way to stand out on the shelf. So today, we'll explore some American whiskey with an unusual focus on what many would consider to be unusual grains. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if truthiness even matters.
I've lived in what most would consider the South for my entire life. For 40 years, I've been immersed in rural life and gained a passing knowledge of agricultural processes in the southeastern U.S. But until I began my career in ag tech nine years ago, I didn't know a little secret that unless you've lived along the Mississippi River south of Kentucky, you likely don't know either. Due to its climate and geography, this region of the southern United States lays claim to the majority of acres of rice production in this country. Not only that, but rice holds the title of being the third largest cereal grain here in the United States as well. How is it that there's a grain that's grown in the heart of what would be traditionally considered whiskey country, but the conversation around rice whiskey is relegated to Japanese brands that are imported for Western culture consumption? It may have more to do with historical implications of the profitability of what is considered a capital-intensive crop in a country where labor costs continue to rise. It could be because there's a utilization of rice as an ingredient in whiskey mash sounds wholeheartedly un-American because we use corn, wheat, rye, and barley only, as if those crops are unique only to the United States. I'm not sure I could validate this point, but I'd bet that rice makes up the base ingredient of more alcohol creations than just about any other base ingredient in the history of mankind. It's borderline ethnocentric to turn up your nose to something that has such a high starch content that it has to be washed half a dozen times if you don't want it to clump during the cooking process. Bucking the thought that I tossed out last episode, that small brands lead to the forefront of innovation, it appears one major label was years ahead of exploration on what many would consider to be unusual grains for American whiskey. In the early 2000s, Jim Beam launched a series of experiments around Jim Beam Signature Craft Series. They explored several different grains, but considering the makeup of American whiskey at the time, the most innovative would be the 11-year brown rice bourbon. Their attempts were to do exactly what I want to talk about today. How do base grains impact the flavor of the final product? And they did it years ahead of anyone else. If they were launching the bottles into the marketplace in 2014 of product that was aged 11 years, well, they began the idea of innovation at latest in 2003. The United States consumer hasn't even really begun to pick up bourbon in earnest at that time. So is Jim Beam trying to stir interest in their offerings by doing something new and unique? I think probably not. Allowing it to sit in a barrel for 11 years to me speaks to the idea that they crafted an offering with foresight and intent. Maybe they did it just to see what would come out the other end, but they didn't do it on a small scale. If you search around long enough, you can still find it on shelves around the country. While Jim Beam is busy crafting up an unusual expression with a grain that has a much larger presence in the North American marketplace, the next distiller is focusing on an ancient grain that has a much smaller presence in the North American marketplace. The term ancient grain could easily be considered meaningless as it's a marketing idea that is used to describe a segment of grains that have been minimally changed over the millennia. And maybe that's where the team behind the next whiskey derived their idea. Wheat and barley are some of the premier segments of grains that hold on to this title of ancient. Rice rounds out the third, and we just talked about it for a few minutes. So what is the fourth ancient grain? Millet is a small seeded grass that is grown all around the world in more arid climates than what we would experience in the southeastern portion of the United States. It's perfectly suited for dry climates, which may be why it's grown primarily in the Dakotas, Nebraska, and almost exclusively Colorado. Maybe it's the lack of adoption of growing this particular grain product in the United States that leads to the giant question mark that is the standard response as to what, if any, benefit comes from making whiskey out of millet. What becomes an even bigger question mark is how does a distiller based out of Illinois decide to use a grain that is not corn, 
a huge crop for the state, but even a step farther, a crop that likely wouldn't be ideal for this state at all. It could be that Koval was searching for a market differentiation position by selecting this alternative ancient grain, or their focus on organic crops led them to millet, which enjoys a large swath of growers that adopt organic principles when farming the crop. The nature of the crop itself lends itself to organic practices. From Koval's bourbon to their four-grain recipe, or the special edition blended whiskey, Millet stands at the forefront of their mash bill creation. Koval has carved out a place in the craft whiskey marketplace for this crop in whiskey distillation. While the first two crops today are considered ancient grains, the final one is anything but an ancient grain. It may actually be the most interesting grain because it is actually a hybrid. The modern American consumer is becoming increasingly enamored with the idea and concept of heirloom breeds of particular plants. If it was good enough for man 150 years ago, why wouldn't it be good enough for us today? Hybridization has been an essential step into the modernization of farming and gardening. Most often, hybrids are a result of a cross-pollination between two of the same type of plant with the hopes of capturing the best qualities of the disparate plants and combining them into one single plant. Large fruit growth, increasing fungal resistance, more drought tolerance, and a host of other options are the driving trends behind something that has been going on for at least a couple of hundred years. The problem that often comes is we often confuse hybrids with frankenfoods. We assume that if we have to intervene to pollinate it, it might be a bad thing and it might produce fruit or vegetables that are inherently unnatural. But nothing could be farther from the truth. In reality, the last grain we are talking about today was bred from two different but related crops with the intent to capture the drought and disease resistance of one and the yield qualities of another. The two crops we are combining to create one new super grain, wheat and rye, two of the most traditional flavoring grains in the bourbon world. So what comes out the other end of distillation of this hybrid? Is it a product with a high spice and a soft finish? Maybe that's the exact question the folks over at Dry Fly Distilling were trying to answer when they decided to start producing Triticale whiskey a handful of years ago. Dry Fly Distilling has a story similar to many non-Kentucky craft distilling operations. A couple of friends decided that they'd try their hand at creating a craft brand to share their love of spirits with others. They check off all the craft buzzwords of grain to glass, locally sourced grain, and handcrafted. While those buzzwords may feel a little bit cliche, their offerings are anything but cliche. They don't hide the fact that they are in Washington, and they aren't afraid to try new things. If you poke around very long, you'll find a large swath of folks that know who they are and enjoy exactly what they're doing. Between the utilization of ancient grains and hybrid grains, I really enjoy the careful crafting and consideration that is going into brand creation. The innovation is encouraging. It indicates that distillers both large and small are concerned with not resting on their laurels. They aren't relying on their current customer base to continue to purchase all of the things that they already know and like. Brands and distillers are willing to take risks and produce some off-the-wall stuff. Without this type of innovation, the growth of the whiskey industry stagnates here in the United States. If it stagnates, you can only guess that the market will shrink and will re-enter a whiskey bust. But even if that doesn't happen, without the innovative ideas for new flavor profiles, we end up with a monoculture of taste. A relatively bland palette to choose from. It's, it's hotel art. Non-offensive, but also non-provoking. We aren't always meant to find the most amazing new thing. We are meant to try something that might make us scratch our heads a little bit. To reconsider what we know to be true about whiskey profiles. To reconsider what it is and is not taboo in product creation. 
If the last episode was about the care and stewardship of the grain, and today's episode is about the grain itself, you might notice a trend. And if you did, well, you're in luck, because the next two episodes will be about two more very important steps in the whiskey creation process, and some brands that I think are doing interesting things around these facets of the operation. As I look over my notes, there's a better than average chance that after the next two episodes, I will likely begin to shift the format of this podcast. I'd like to pause in the creation of new content and revisit the stories I've already told. Maybe we'll invite some guests to come on and actually taste the brands that I've talked about so far, give some off-the-cuff reactions to what is actually in the bottle, and maybe even reach out to some of the brands and people I've talked about to possibly have a conversation with them. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.